listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak with virtual reality therapist Michael Carthy. The whole point of the therapy is to build them up into a moment where they have this sense of belief and you're hoping that they will then leave the therapy room and find a sense of efficacy that I can do this now. Michael shared his insight into how he uses virtual reality to help individuals overcome anxiety, conquer their phobias, and tackle their fears. This episode was recorded on location in England at London's first virtual reality exposure therapy clinic. Michael, could you explain what VR therapy is? The reason why I've set this this kind of clinic up is really because I'm fascinated by the the application of psychology. You know, not necessarily figuring out why are people experiencing what they're experiencing, you know, why am I experiencing fears or phobias or anxiety in my day, but I'm really interested in the how of change. Um, you know, traditional psychology and counseling will help people understand in a very linear way why they are the way they are. Whereas what I'm really focused on and what I've been specializing in for the, the last number of years is is the how. And for me, virtual reality therapy is, you know, the how of change. Now, you've gone through a number of different types of therapy before you got to virtual reality therapy. I know you're working with hypnosis at one point. I just wonder, what is the story behind your work? Yeah, my story starts... Um, like everyone else's, I suppose, at the age of 25, experiencing, um, you know, you wouldn't say depression, but maybe just a moment where I was, you know, I'd classify it as a probably a quarter life crisis, you know, working in a profession that wasn't fully fulfilling me. Um, I wasn't probably getting what I needed in my relationships, uh, whether that was at home or with my friends or with partners, etc. And you know, I spent about six to nine months just reassessing, trying to figure out, you know, how can I make myself better? How can I get more of what I want? And when I turned to, and this is in Ireland at the time, when I turned to the traditional services available, whether it was, um, you know, my GP going to the doctor who tried to prescribe me medications that were supposed to make me feel better, or whether it was going to, you know, the local church and getting some counselling and that was just me sitting there for an hour, just kind of feeling worse as I walked out and feeling, you know, what I expected to feel, was, which was better. Um, or I was going to psychiatrists, you know, who again, just looked at me in terms of, you know, my symptoms and what I was presenting with and wanted to prescribe me more medication. You know, in that moment, I started to look elsewhere into the world of psychology and really into the application of psychology. And that's where I started to find things like cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, the fact that I can change my thinking and if I change my thinking, that will change how I feel and that will change ultimately how I act and behave. Um, I started to get interested in hypnosis as a, you know, a really kind of rapid way to work with some of the emotional barriers or the emotional blocks that were there within myself first. Um, again, to be able to change how I feel about myself and ultimately to translate that into my real world. So that's when I started to get interested in, I suppose, rapid change and also in the application of psychology. So that's where the hypnosis and, you know, cognitive psychology comes in. And then later on, I started to get interested in um, human givens, which uh, Joe Griffin and Ivan Tyrrell, um, the founders of this process of change, which, 
you know, really they've created a methodology or an approach that is very quick compared compared to what you get in the NHS here with 12 sessions of CBT. If you present with, you know, some debilitating disorder, they found that in three or four sessions using the human givens approach, they can get people into a, a similar situation where they're completely free of what they were experiencing. So, you know, these approaches for me, what, what excites me is that um, they're counter to this idea or this view that change is hard, that, you know, we have to struggle through, uh, you know, two years of, of psychoanalytical work in order to kind of have some epiphany that's going to make me feel better. And they're counter to the idea that I need some medication. I need something um, that's been created by the pharmaceutical industry in order to make me feel happy about myself. So, you know, we have the cognitive psychology, CBT, we have hypnotherapy, which is extremely effective in, in my experience and with my clients. We have human givens approach, which which I really, really enjoy reading about and learning more about. And the final, you know, one is the positive psychology, which, um, you know, has become of interest for me in the last kind of five or six years, recently doing a master's in positive psychology. And again, it's in the application of the principles and the tools that have come out of the positive psychology space that I'm really interested in. So are you finding crossover between some of the work that you were doing previously to VR therapy? Is VR a form of enhancement of pre-existing therapies or is it an entirely new form of therapy? You could compare it to things like systematic desensitization of fear. Um, you could compare it to flooding um, exposure, which was, you know, which was developed in the kind of 60s and 70s. Um, but really for me, I think it's it's a new, completely new form of, of treatment, um, which has been extremely lacking, you know, in the therapy room. Something where, you know, I can sit with my client in the comfort of my office here in London or if I'm in Dublin and I can gradually and slowly, you know, using my experience and, you know, all the, the session time that I've had to kind of judge how quickly and how fast to take these people into the situation that they've been trying to avoid for such a long time. Um, and for me, it's a really, it's it's really been a missing piece in terms of, you know, the arsenal or the set of tools that I can turn to when I'm sitting in, in a client session. You know, before, you know, over the last kind of 10 years without the VRT, you know, helping people to overcome their fears and their phobias, there would be this moment after session two or three or four where I would be taking them physically, you know, um, into the tube for the first time, or maybe taking them to the top of a tall building here in London, you know, the, the Heron Towers around the corner with that nano elevator that goes from zero to, to 40 floors in, you know, 60 seconds or whatever. And really I was handholding through that process. You know, the whole point of the, 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 the therapy is to build them up into a moment where they have this sense of belief and you're hoping that they will then leave the therapy room and find a sense of efficacy that I can do this now. And sometimes it's that one moment where they're standing at the top of the Heron Tower looking out over London, something they haven't done in 10 years, or they're in that tube and they're sitting there feeling comfortable as the, as the, as the train takes moves away from the platform. Sometimes it's that one moment that allows them to find that sense of, well, I can maybe do this now. Maybe this, this idea is, is in my past. So could you take us through what an average uh, VR therapy session looks and feels like? So what is the process behind a VR therapy session? Yeah, there's, there's much more to it than just the VR system, just the technology, just the headset and just the immersion. You know, beforehand, I'm, I'm very, very careful to, um, you know, meet the person, get to know them, to understand their experience of fear or, or this phobic reaction or what we would call the fight or flight response. Even though there are huge commonalities across everybody who experiences fear, and it's one of those universal emotions that we all experience probably almost every day, fear, worry, concern, 
there is individual kind of triggers or individual traumas or individual experiences that that person has had. So it's really about gathering the information initially getting to understand it from their perspective, building a sense of trust and rapport with the client, um, going through some scales and really kind of um, analyzing exactly where they're at in their experience. And then it's about deciding what form of treatment they need, whether it is some um, cognitive therapy, whether it's a bit of positive psychology, maybe the interventions from that space, whether we use some guided visualization techniques to even first of all, just in their imagination, imagine overcoming the fear. And then eventually the VRT comes in. It's a stepping stone between the therapy room and the real world. You're hoping that in the immersion of this virtual experience, which feels extremely real, that they start to get this idea that maybe this can work for me. Maybe I can now leave the office and, and walk out and, and face my fear. I think there is a degree of miscommunication when it comes to virtual reality therapy. People just assume that you, you come into your office, Michael, you sit down, you put the VR headset on and suddenly you're, you're cured. But it feels like the key aspect to make the, the technology work is this kind of feedback process where it's, it's not just the technology itself, but it's the fact that the technology is assisted by someone like yourself with cognitive psychology training. Could you talk to the importance of this thing around it being assisted? The fact that you need someone to guide you through it. Yeah, you're completely right. I mean, I would completely agree with you in saying that the VR therapy, the technology, and it it is at a position where it's extremely useful as a tool, um, is actually would be, I would consider to be dangerous on its own. I.e. if someone was just to come in and start playing around with the software without having that trusted and experienced therapist or practitioner with them, they could probably do more damage than than, than good. The reason is, is that it's, it's about being able to judge the situation, to recognize how far to take the person into the exposure. Um, there's the rare occasion where you flood someone with, with an exposure, i.e. they have a fear of spiders and, you know, you have four tarantulas walking around their virtual arm and that's a flooding experience. Maybe sometimes that can help the person get over it, but it wouldn't be an enjoyable experience. So the, the, the core of this is, you know, actually the self-determination theory, which is, and that's what a good practitioner will do, will be to give the person a sense of um, autonomy over the, over the process, which means that they're in control of it. As I'm explaining it to people, I'm explaining to them that you're in control of everything. It's, you know, I'm going to be communicating with you throughout this, throughout the, the whole process and through the repeated exposures. And at any moment, you can take the headset off. At any moment, you can just decide not to walk into the tube. You can decide to, to close your eyes even in, in the virtual world as well. So really, they're in control of that process, which gives them a sense of um, autonomy over, over the situation. The second part of the self-determination theory is a sense of competence or mastery. So it's a gradual mastery over their fear, the thing they've been avoiding, because sometimes it's maybe for 20 years, 25 years of their life, they've been avoiding it. So it's a gradual sense of mastery. It's not this quick win, this quick moment, even though I would say the whole process is quite rapid. Uh, comparatively to other treatments that are out there. But it's about a gradual sense of mastery over the situation. And then the last component of the self-determination theory is a sense of belonging. And I think that comes from a sense of feeling proud. Uh, What will their parents say? What will their family say when they see them kind of, you know, finally getting in that car and hitting the motorway or, you know, standing up and doing a public speaking event, which would have been debilitating for them, you know, a couple of weeks before. So the sense of belonging comes from how will people see them? How will they see themselves? So I think a good practitioner is is thinking about all of these ideas, thinking about these um, well-established theories, and is taking people at a pace that's not dangerous, it's not going to cause damage, and it's done in a really self-safe uh, and controlled way. 
you know, and I think that's the skill in, in, in working with someone as a VRT, as a VRT therapist or whatever you want to call it. So one of the things about therapy is it needs to be hyper customized to the individual or the, or the patient that you're dealing with. And one of the things around VR is that you can hyper customize these environments, at least as far as I understand it. Could you talk a little bit about the software you're using to generate the experiences for the, the individual you're working with? Yeah, I think that is actually the beauty of the the application, the back end, the software. You know, Sias is actually the name of the company who developed these environments. Is about this 30 plus environments that you can use for, for the spectrum of different fears and phobias that people might face. The most common ones being fear of heights, fear of driving, fear of the tube, fear of transport, fear of public speaking. These kind of ones are, are the most common. Fear of flying would be another one that's that's really common. And what do the, some of those look like? What, what's the experience of being in, in one of those examples? Well, so the, the best way to describe it would be to say it's like being in a cinema. You know, imagine if we were sitting in West, uh, West London right now, maybe uh, sitting in Leicester Square in mean, one of those big cinemas. It's an immersive experience. You know, you're sitting there watching a, a hero movie or you're sitting there watching a sad movie. Maybe you cry. You're watching a horror movie. You feel afraid. You know, just by sitting in a cinema screen and by observing what's happening on the screen and the, the kind of sensory experience of the sound and the whole, the whole situation, it can trigger a very real response inside the body and inside the mind. Um, if, for example, if I'm watching a horror movie, you know, there's a part of me that cognitively, intellectually knows that I'm sitting in, in a cinema screen. I've been here 100 times. It's the middle of the day. But there's another part of me, the emotional part. You can use any metaphor you want to describe it, whether it's the unconscious mind or just the emotional part of who we are, that will trigger... Um, very real feelings because that part of me cannot really tell the difference between what's real and what's fake, what's fantasy or what's reality. As it watches the cinema screen, it just can't tell the difference. So what does it do if there's someone being killed or it's a scary moment? There's a part of me that's kind of pushing the fight or flight response. This survival instinct kicks in, adrenaline, heart rate increases, body temperature increases, and it feels so real, even though cognitively, intellectually, I know I'm completely safe. This is the exact same when it comes to a, a phobic reaction. A lot of people feel silly or if they feel ashamed or they feel like, why do I have this thing? I know I'm completely safe, but there's a part of me that's generating this survival instinct, this fight or flight response. So recognizing that that's what it's like in a cinema screen, VR is probably one step further. You know, it's a fully immersive experience where now you're a kind of the, the, the star in the show. You know, you're not sitting there watching a screen, you're, you're in the screen. So now you're in the horror movie, you know, now you're, you're standing there and it's, if it's something you've been running away from for a long time, well, you feel like you're the star of the show. And I would say that it, it works with that part of the mind where there's no logic, the part of the mind that controls the fight or flight response in the exact same way. So when people are sitting here in, in my office here in London or in Dublin, I, I, I sit them down and they're having very real world responses as they're immersed inside the virtual reality environment. And that's amazing because what it allows me to do is in real time work with that person through the emotion. And the ultimate goal is to, is to allow people to recognize the impermanent nature of emotion. That even something like fear or the fight or flight response will, will of course come. But if we start working with it, instead of running away from it, it goes quite quickly. Very impermanent. It can come and go quite fast. 
what most people are doing when they are experiencing high emotional arousal, like fear, is they're trying to control everything almost, you know, if they're on an aeroplane, they're thinking, you know, uh, they're trying to listen for noises in the engine. They're trying to, you know, see if the stewardess knows what she's doing. You know, they're listening and hoping that there won't be bumps or turbulence because they think if they, if they, if they're on guard, if they're protective, if they take care of them so they can do something about it, which of course is not true. So their locus of control is really external. It's really outside. So in the therapy room here, what we do is we immerse them into that, those experiences, like being on an airplane where there's turbulence. But what I'm doing with the client is I'm getting them to focus on what they actually can control. And there's only a few very finite things that we can control in this world. You know, I can control my breathing. I can always control my breathing. I can control things like my body posture. If I'm speaking, I can control the pace at which I speak, which is very relevant for something like public speaking, for example. Um, I can control whether I'm smiling or not or what I'm doing with my face. The reason why these things are really powerful is actually because it creates a feedback loop. What I do physically with my body in terms of my body language, my smile, my breath will actually calm the body and calm the central nervous system, the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system that goes completely out of whack. By focusing on what I can actually be in control of, it can bring people through that emotion quite quickly. And they experience high emotional arousal. It comes, it goes. And as the wave washes over them, they're still standing there and they're still in the experience, recognizing that I survived it. I coped through it this time. Instead of having that really debilitating moment of, I can't do it. I'm not going to board the plane. It's time for me to go home or else they, they create a plethora of coping strategies or, you know, drinking alcohol or maybe taking some Valium or whatever it might be. All of these things are just kind of helping them get through the moment, but in a way where they believe they still can't do it. So people are leaving <clears throat> with this experience, focusing on what they can control, finding evidence to support the fact that they can do it, which builds a sense of self-belief and self-efficacy. Um, and it translates into the real world. I sometimes describe virtual reality as a stepping stone between the therapy room and, and the real world. And for me, that's exactly what I've seen using it now for about a year with hundreds of clients, you know, uh, hundreds of, uh, hundreds of sessions with people. And you know, I wouldn't say as a standalone treatment, it's, 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 it's a catch-all and it's got, it's a silver bullet or anything like that. But I would say in conjunction with everything else that I've been specializing in for the last 10 years, it's become extremely effective and it's something I'm using every day. So are you able to control the environments through the software? Are you able to make them more intense or less intense depending on the, on the individual you're working with? Yeah, exactly. To answer your, your original question, I would say, yeah, of course. Um, that's why it's so good, because being able to tailor make an approach for the client is is really important. Everyone comes with their own um, kind of specific uh, situations that we have to change. So the the back end, the SIAS software provides a back end that is completely customizable. Um, let me give you an example. So we've been talking about fear of flying. Someone could have a trigger that says they have a fear the night before the flight, for example, or it's the anticipation at the boarding gate or, or else it's none of that. It's actually when they, when they sit down on the plane and the doors close. Or it could be it's only when I'm at the window or it could be it's when I'm on the aisle or it could be it's when I'm at the front of the plane or the back of the plane. It could be it's only when it's raining or it's only at nighttime. Sometimes the, 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 the trigger that creates the phobic reaction is so specific because really it ties all the way back into a moment that they've had in the past, some what we call the initial sensitizing events, some traumatic situations. So what it allows me to do is to capture information from the person, get to know them and their experience, and then I can really custom make the experience for them. 
what I mean by that is, you know, if, if it was at nighttime in the rain and they were sitting at the window at the front of the plane, I mightn't give them that experience straight away. I might build up to the one moment, but I could take them on the plane, maybe sit them on the aisle. It's the middle of the day. There's no turbulence. And that could be their first experience of getting on a plane. And then eventually we build up to this triggering moment, which they've been afraid of or running away from for a long time. So that um, customization of the software and the technology, you know, is really, really important. Does the VR experience lose efficacy over time? Are you finding that initially it's a very uh, visceral experience because it's so new and then eventually the effect kind of wears off because they're beginning to realize it's a virtual environment or does it continue to have the same efficacy throughout the period of time that you work with the individual? I actually, it's a really good question. I I actually believe that there has to be some more research into that exact idea. What I can tell you from um, my experience using it and what I can tell you from seeing it with clients is that definitely there's a change in the client's um, anxiety level over repeat exposures. Um, and I can see that when they're leaving after session three or session four, that if I compare and we get, a, we get a report and I can show the client this as well, which becomes a massive convincer for that person. They can say, when I walked in, oh, wow, look at my anxiety level was, was doing this. Just before I boarded the plane, I could see how it increased. But now actually when I go through the experience, it's, it's normal. And that could become a strong convincer for the client to go out into the real world and, and prove that that's true in the real world too. So. I can tell you that there is a shift across the reporting and over the repeat exposures, whether that's down to the fact that it's losing, losing efficacy as, as a technology and maybe they're just getting used to the environment, I don't know. Or is it due to the fact that maybe they're gaining a, a sense of self-belief and they're boosting that idea of efficacy that maybe I can do this now. Um, I want to believe that it's the latter. I want to believe that, you know, it's not that they're just getting used to the environment and it's becoming easier. Uh, my good feeling is telling me because people do report back to me after they, you know, eventually get on that plane to Berlin or they get on that plane to Dubai or whatever it is, that it is translating into their real experience too. You know, so whatever's happening in the therapy room over a number of sessions seems to be translating into their real world, which might be evidence to support the fact that it is just due to the fact that they're they're changing, you know, and the technology is staying static in terms of how effective it is. Well, let's talk about the the fact that some of this technology is to a degree static. I mean, is there things as a therapist you'd love to be able to work with or add on to the VR technology? For example, smells or other senses, you know, the the smell of uh, the uh, fuel going into an airplane and things like that. Is that something that you want to see progress into VR therapy eventually? Well, we know that, you know, movement and the kind of olfactory senses are are sometimes some of the strongest triggers for people in terms of bringing them back to emotional memories. And that's what this is. It's about allowing someone to be immersed into experience. Maybe they see it, maybe they hear it, maybe they feel it in some way. And if you can add more sensory inputs into that, it's going to, I suppose, be a a fully more immersive experience for that person. I I can't really imagine how that would happen apart from putting someone into like a pod like device (laughs) where the smells being pumped in and there's movement, I suppose. One One of the limitations I have noticed is when someone is getting onto the tube or maybe they're about to board a plane. I mean, they're standing here in my office and they're walking around, you know, a four foot by four foot room. 
And so, you know, what, how they're moving or how they're, how they're physically moving, it, it doesn't really translate into the world in the same sense. So I do see that, you know, adding some joysticks or adding some way for them to move around a situation would make it feel more real for the person and maybe even boost that sense of autonomy over, over, over the, how, how in control they are of the environment. Maybe that would make a big difference. We realise that to a degree there's massive uh, efficacy with VR therapy, but does that mean there's certain exclusionary criteria that you have to look at when putting someone into it? If you know it's going to have this massive effect, could it also do the reverse? It's something that I have thought about a lot and have put a lot of safeguards in place. So there are certain criteria or certain individuals that, you know, say, for example, people are, you know, taking medication um, you know, someone's taking a beta blocker or they're taking Valium or they're on an antidepressant or an antipsychotic. I mean, you could put them into the virtual experience after they've taken their daily medication and they won't have a response, i.e., you know, the, the biomedical kind of system has been hijacked to a certain degree. And so it would be, you know, apart from them just enjoying the experience, you're not going to be able to get them to actually face their fear in, in any real in any real sense. So that's one limitation. You know, people who are you know on daily medication, they might not be able to use the the technology, um, and there might just be a process of helping them maybe you know get into a situation where they they don't feel like they need the medication, and then eventually they can come and face their fear or their phobia or anxiety. And the other large consideration is to make sure people don't leave with a negative experience. It's true to say, as I've, as I've already mentioned, without a trusted practitioner and without someone who kind of has all the experience that maybe I do or my business partner has, you it, it could be very easy to give someone um, more evidence to support the fact that they can't do it. We're always very careful to take people as far as we can, even if it's a, an inch, a step, sometimes a mile, because they're able to do that to a point where they can leave with a big smile on their face. They have a breakthrough moment. And that's, that's, the, that's the whole... I suppose that's the art to this, being able to watch someone sub and just subjectively judge. You know, when, when I see people, I can see what's happening even in their pulse, in their neck, in their breathing, in their body posture. You can kind of just gauge over a long period of time of where someone is. And obviously you do have the biometric sensors that are capturing the anxiety level in, in real time as well. So there is that kind of very delicate balance between taking them just as much as they need to go, but not too much so they have a negative experience. Could you run a therapy session over over the web with someone with their device at home? Or do you still need to be in the same environment as that person to recognize those very subtle cues you were just talking about? <clears throat> That's a really, really good question. So I am fascinated by technology as probably as much as I am as by psychology. And, you know, this VRT um, is, is kind of where psychology and technology meet for me. You know, you see uh, you see the mobile phone apps, you can see wearables these days. And, on, and you know, you can see that uh, these kind of what were kind of separate domains are starting to kind of cross and we're getting these wonderful applications. A big step forward could be, um, and I know this is something that companies like Skype and there's other companies out there who are trying to create this, is having virtual meetings with people where, you know, you're sitting at home in your kitchen, but everyone puts on their virtual headset and now you're sitting in a boardroom and someone's able to like, you know, draw out what they're going to do for the day or, you know, come up with a strategy for the day or whatever it might be. And you can have these wonderful conversations quite remotely, but it feels like you're there and it feels like it's real. And I can see a future where that's possible uh, for in that in this capacity where it's a, a therapist and a and a client, someone in need. 
and it would be particularly useful for places like, you know, I can think of the West of Ireland, for example, or places like New Zealand or some very remote places where, you know, maybe access to high quality experience therapy is not available or else maybe it's too expensive. And if we could create these uh, these platforms where we could have these virtual settings where, you know, maybe I could judge someone's body language through the virtual experience. Maybe I could have an accurate reading like the biometrics of anxiety and maybe, you know, body posture, maybe get a representation of what the face looks like. And, you know, you would be able to safely take people through these situations, but from a, a, a two remote uh, locations. And I think that's, you know, a very exciting idea. And I think, you know, I don't know how far we are away from those kind of uh, the execution of those ideas. I mean, to take it one step further, we, we talk a lot about the obsolescence of certain jobs through technology. Do, do you think your own job as a therapist is at risk from some AI that will be able to understand these sort of biometric triggers and then be able to deliver to the human automatically at home with their own device the exact sort of therapy they need? Or do you think that's a very dangerous possibility in actual fact, there still needs to be a human to human element to make this stuff work. You know, because I'm so interested in the technology kind of sector, and uh, I think it would be wonderful if there was an advanced enough AI to be able to provide people with, you know, relevant and effective and rapid applications of psychology. I think that would be absolutely amazing. Would that mean that I would be out of a job? Probably not. <laughs> um, you know, I probably would find a way to still be a part of that in some capacity. Um, but really, you see this as kind of the democratization of, of psychology uh, through, through the method of technology. I, w- I would welcome it massively. And I think it would be I think it's really required, in fact. You know, we only have to look at the statistics coming from the World Health Organization about depression and, you know, in 2020. And we only have to look across the world at suicide rates, etc., to recognize that we are you know, ever increasing disenfranchised, you know, population or species and anywhere where technology can be applied to provide people with a increased sense of identity, an increased sense of well-being, high, high emotional, positive um, emotions each day, um, make us healthier. You know, I really would welcome that idea. Uh, would it mean that I'd be out of a job? I'm not too sure. I'd probably just go sit on a beach somewhere. <laughs> well, you, you could clone multiple Michaels and have versions of you uh, in, in everybody's uh, headset. What makes you specifically interesting and the work that you're doing here in London interesting is the fact that you're working with these tools in the wild with individuals who need this sort of work and this sort of therapy. And I wonder what sort of feedback are you giving to the people who make these platforms and make this software? Are you, are you actively involved in that research process? And what are some of the things you're asking for and some of the things that you'd like to see? Uh, you know, the SIAS is the company that I've been working with. They've been very, very good um, in terms of uh, providing information for me to build a business around virtual reality. And, you know, we have been in contact quite frequently and quite often in in, in, in terms of giving feedback and they have webinars and they have uh, training sessions all the time, etc. Um, and I feel like they're a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of Every time I, I kind of log in, I might, I might go away for a week or work for a week and come back into the system and there'll be a new application. There'll be a new environment that they've created. One of the latest ones is the um, EDMR, or rapid eye movement technique, which now you can do in the virtual world. You know, and since uh, uh, it's been used quite effectively in France, for example, after the terrorist attacks and it's become this uh, treatment or, or technique that isn't isn't exactly about facing fears and phobias, but it's about curing anxiety or trauma, post-traumatic stress. Could you explain that? 
a little bit more. So how was it used after after Paris? I'm, I'm not aware of this so example. So e- even outside of the virtual world, how it's used is it's about moving the eyes back and forth while while allowing your your mind to wander back to a traumatic event. And what they find is, and there's a little, there's still a lot of research to be done. It's something to do with short-term memory and long-term memory. But what they find is once you follow this exercise and you practice it, kind of like you would practice meditation, is that the, the emotional currency of the traumatic event starts to uh, disappear. And, and that's how, um, you know, post-traumatic stress or that's how traumatic events can, can affect our experience. What happens is we keep getting brought back to this emotional memory and it kind of replays into our experience and we feel high emotional arousal in situations where we're, we're actually quite safe. So what this uh, technique does is it allows us to engage with the, with the memory, which holds a lot of emotion, um, but it allows us to desensitize the emotion. So if I was to say to you, Luke, uh, you know, what did you have for dinner three Wednesdays ago? What would you say? I have no idea. Great. Because there's no emotional currency associated with that memory. But if I said to you, you know, tell me about the best holiday you've had this summer, or if I said, tell me about, you know, the best job promotion you ever got, or I asked you about a very specific situation where there was a lot of emotional connection, it would come back to you, you know, in full technicolor. And that's kind of how negative experiences work as well. There's so emo- so much emotion associated in that in that moment of shock or trauma that it keeps replaying on our experience. So what we do is we kind of avoid it. We run away from it. And EDMR is a way for us to really stop running away from it, running metaphorically back towards the emotion, but just uh, desensitizing it in a way. So it becomes like that memory of, you know, what did I have for dinner three Wednesdays ago? Well, I can't even remember doesn't come back up into my experience. What um, SIAS have done very effectively is they've provided an, an application now where you can put the headset on and what it does is it takes you into a calming experience. You go through the process of moving your eyes back and forth. It just leads you through this, um, like kind of like a meditation, I suppose, but it's a way of desensitizing the fear associated with previous trauma and previous shock. Now, do you think these tools could be ever used for preventative medicine and you're talking about some of these statistics around mental health i mean how do you how do you kind of get in there before any of the bad stuff starts happening could vr be a potential solution to that absolutely absolutely i mean the curing fears and phobias is not preventative it's 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 working with people who have already experienced a, a traumatic event or some situation or a conditioned response that they've learned from their environment or from the people around them um you know depression psychosis um, most of the mental health disorders that we have are are, are very much uh, set up in that medical model the curative model um but these uh, these technologies and where kind of this virtual reality is and it feels real, I think we could get into a situation where people are using it from a preventative perspective. And whether that means creating um, some new environments that will allow people to develop, you know, um, you know, emotional intelligence, for example, games that are associated around increasing emotional intelligence, like focusing on building the compassion itself or working on what your values are, what your strengths are. You know, there's so many actual positive psychology interventions that could be so easily translated into the virtual environment. But I wonder if there's one step further, if it could be almost building a mental immune system Mm. towards something like depression. Yes. So early warning system, essentially, so you're able to recognize the triggers before you get to the point where you're, you know, sitting in, in your office saying, look, I have this thing now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that would just, that's a, it's, it's, it's an exciting but a, and a big piece of work for some. And like, it's the gamification of trying to get people into a situation where they're focusing on building that emotional immune system 
as much as they're focusing on building a physical immune system, that they really are hyper aware of what it means to be emotionally healthy. And I think, you know, this is about young kids maybe, or, you know, the, 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 the generations that are, that are coming now. And maybe this is something that, you know, when we're, when we're in our fifties and sixties, we'll look back and say, there it is, it's happening. You know, maybe there's, 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 there's a younger generation that will be put into a virtual world quite early on and it will just automatically, you know, be able to kind of give them this sense of what it means to be physically and mentally healthy. And there's a range of games, there's a range of uh, practices, there's a range of applications that they can turn to um, that are preventative, that's stopping people from having these moments where they're quarter-life crisis, half-life crisis, where they're turning to medication in a moment where they can't deal with stuff. And that, I think, is, is so exciting. And I think there should be, and maybe there is, people working on it. And that's kind of the principles of the, the positive psychology movement, which is a move back towards a more preventative um, set of tools and strategies available to people, which I actually feel, you know, with the right development company could easily be easily be translated into that, that, that type of game that, that kids maybe or teenagers could use. On the flip side, do you think some of these technologies, whether it's VR or the mobile phone, are causing some of the mental health issues that you're you're talking about, do you think there's this, this weird feedback loop between you have to, the VR is causing it and then you have to go into VR to solve it and then back again? And I, I'm probably not um, qualified <laughs> enough to answer okay. that question. But what I would say is, just through my own life and through observation, uh, it, it is clear that this has become, uh, you know, a pervasive uh, idea within particularly kids these days to be stuck on the iPhone, stuck on the, the iPad. It seems like we have just accepted that that's the way things will be in the future. And it doesn't seem like it's something that's going to change. I do have reservations about, you know, wearables and tools like technological tools that are supposed to tell us how to f how we feel. Uh, what, what that stops us from doing is, is to be mindful enough or to be connected to ourselves enough to actually be able to judge how we feel in the moment without some, you know, little alarm that's going to go off in my arm every five minutes or, or, or without some device that's been designed to help me, you know, cope through my life. What does that's just a it just becomes another exterior crutch that I believe that I need. And I do see technology, you know, unless we're very, very careful about how we set it up, I do see some technologies going down that road. I mean, I don't know, I, I, since I've been a, I'm an 80s child, so even playing with technology when it came out, you know, the Super Nintendo and Sega Mega Drive, we used to play them for days and hours and stay up all night. And it feels like we will always get this excitement. We will always have, um, you know, this drive and this, this, um, this want for these types of technologies. It then comes down to the developers, maybe to the government policymakers or wherever those people might be to maybe create a, you know, a very responsible way for us to engage with these types of technologies. It's interesting what you're saying about quantifying some of this information. I mean, earlier you said that the ability for someone to actually see that there has been a change in the software and the way in which they're reacting to something is massively transformative because there it is, there's proof. The computer says, I'm getting better. You know, it's massively psychologically uh, important for uh, them as part of their recovery. But then also you're saying that the ability to have all this information is actually making us less aware of ourselves. I, I wonder where do you think is the right balance between capturing as much data as possible versus allowing some people to build some form of intuitive awareness. So I wonder if you're experimenting yet with EEG headsets on folks as you're doing these sorts of therapy sessions. The question is, that amount of data is actually showing us anything or is it just noisy at this stage in time? I think it depends on the context and the situation you're using it. You know, I would I use VRT the way that a surgeon would use a scalpel. 
only very specifically and only when I know it's going to have a big impact on the person. I don't just wheel it around and use it, you know, session one just so they can get an experience. So I think if technology is used in that way, very specifically when it's going to have an impact on people's lives, well, I, I think that's probably a nice way to look at it. You know, just capturing information for the sake of capturing information, using technology because it's a kind of a fad or because it's going to create some sort of magic one sense of like this technology is going to fix you. I don't like that idea because actually that takes away a sense of autonomy. What we talked about, the self-determination theory. I want people to recognize that they're doing it, that it's not the VRT that's helping them overcome their fear. The VRT is creating the situation, the context where they are overcoming their fear. But that they're doing it themselves, that you, you you did it. It wasn't that some technology or some hypnotherapy or some cognitive um, wizardry that, you know, made you feel better. It was that we create a context where you came in and you did it to yourself. It's a way of um, using technology very specifically to achieve a very specific goal. Thank you to Michael for showing us behind the scenes of how he uses virtual reality as part of his therapy practice. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode or follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.